Welcome to Lumpen Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpen Radio. This week, we learn about how modern society steals from its own citizens, discuss Chicago journalist Studs Terkel, and work through the depression of the pandemic. All this plus the Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCYFM, only on the Lumpen Week in Review for June 12, 2020. Chuck Mertz spoke with William C. Anderson about how capitalism labels oppressed people in rebellion as looters, while obscuring the fact that they are in fact the ones who have been robbed. This is Hell airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m. I personally, and this might say something horrible about me, I don't know, I personally, I cannot take watching even one second of what happened to George Floyd. I watched the video once, and I don't need to see it again. Yet it is being showed every day, every night. The national news last night, CBS, ABC, NBC, they each showed it again. You write, lynchings thrive off spectatorship. For white supremacists, the act of killing is also an act of fellowship, an opportunity for indoctrination. Simply spreading images of racist killings and asking the state to stop killing us is not going to stop them. In fact, while it's important to publicize the fact that these killings are occurring, sometimes the spread of such images also galvanizes white supremacists. How does the witnessing of lynching indoctrinate white supremacists because they keep showing these killings over and over again and i keep wondering is it as the media repeats important to see the video so we understand the violent cruelty that police are using against uh, black people or is this unfortunately potentially spreading even more white supremacy you know um we have to understand that a lot of this this stuff is a part of a process that we see over and over and over again. Um, We know that the police are killing us. We know the police are killing us. I don't need to see a video of the police killing a black person to know that the police are killing us. I don't need to see evidence of the police killing a black person to know that the police are killing us. The police have always killed black people. That has been their purpose since their birth since the birth of birth of the modern police force as we know it this has happened so we can sit up here and say oh you know oh well where's the tape where's the footage where's this where's that but all of all of that narrative about needing to see what actually happened plays into the to the the binary of innocence and guilt and saying hey do we need to do we need to justify the killing in the first place or is the or is the killing not justified when in fact we know that the extrajudicial killing of black people lynching and historically the violence that has taken place against black people is something that has never been justified that is the that is the legacy of all of this death and all of this brutality that has been waged against black people in the first place so i don't feel like it's good to get caught up in evidence when we know what has happened to black people in this country has happened with or without so-called innocence and guilt so what you end up doing is you have these videos that are widely circulating that are traumatizing black people and they also take they take away a lot from the person who's actually being brutalized, who's being killed, and who's being abused in the video. Because I'll tell you right now, if anything were ever to happen to me and I was to be killed by a police officer, or whatever the case may be, if I'm experiencing some sort of violence from white supremacy in this country, and it's caught on camera or tape or whatever, I don't want it to circulate. I don't want it to be shared by some viral influencer saying people need to see this so that they can get retweets. I want people to do something that is an act of rebellion that strikes back at what took my life in the first place. I don't want people to share a viral video of me and have it circulated and have it end up in white supremacist forums so that they can joke about it and copy and paste it, you know, in uh, little goofy videos and memes that they make to joke about it. I want people to do something in response to that violence that happened to me if something happened to me like that. And that's what's taken away from a lot of the people who fall victim, because what if they feel the same way? You don't know if people want those videos of them being killed circulating like that. 
I don't want that. So, you know, when you see uh, like the family of Mike Brown, who told people to stop circulating images of him and his body laying in the street after that happened, you don't know what people who are victims of police brutality and other forms of white supremacist violence want in the first place. People assume because they feel a sense of ownership over black people's bodies and they feel like they can do whatever they want because the legacy is black people are property. We can do whatever we want with their bodies and we can share and, you know, disseminate these images as we want. But that's that's absolutely, absolutely um, ridiculous. Like we can't we can't continue feeling like we have the right to just take people's last moments, these precious moments of their life, these really sensitive moments of their life and just do with them whatever we please. You know, it's not it's not it's not right. It's just not right. And so we have to think about the also the the legacy of what we know black death to be when it comes to images in this country, which is, you know, obviously there's lynching photos we can bring up, which were circulated as on postcards to celebrate black death. That still happens. Like I mentioned, like the white supremacists are still doing that. So there's way more to this than actually just sharing something um, that, you know, is going to help the cause because it's actually really traumatic and it's not, it's not necessarily helpful to uh, try to always have to galvanize people by saying, look at what happened here, you know, force people to see it so that they'll get angry. We need to tell people why, the, why they need to be angry in the first place without having to show them a murder. If we're relying on murder to galvanize people, to get people on our side, then that's a problem. We need to be focused on how we can get people to understand that this society is killing us without needing to have this, this whole, you know, this whole like really pornographic uh, relationship with seeing uh, black death that, you know, white supremacists engage in, you know, it's, it's not, it's not, it's not helping us. Yeah, pornographic is a good word, and it reminds me of a <clears throat> conversation we were having on Monday with uh, art critic uh, Ariella Aisha Azale, and she was talking about the imperialist and the colonial nature of photography and how you claim the things that you see when you are taking a picture in photography. It wasn't the intention of photography, but she even argues in her book that imperialism and colonialism was fortified and exacerbated by photography. So there's this kind of invasion and taking over and claim property over the individual who you are taking the photo of. And I couldn't help but think about that during your response to the question. You also write that as protesters are being accused of looting and rioting in Minneapolis or anywhere else, this time uh, demands that we reflect on the systematic robbery of black America, as you're pointing out. Make this one really important distinction. You write, corporations in the United States, again, have walked away with an unprecedented and astronomical amount of money in 2020. With no accountability in sight, there was little to no opposition to their monumental robbery. They were handed trillions. Politicians working in service to the corporate elite and afraid of appearing opposed to a deal that would largely benefit Wall Street pushed it through. Of course, the deal left many vulnerable people in the dust. This is definitely not a perspective, William, that has been shared on any establishment TV news outlets, even with several being on 24-7 and constantly talking about the uprising over the last week. To you, what explains the lack of a connection between the CARES Act, which gave trillions to the already rich and wealthy corporations? What explains to you this only being seen as protests against police violence and not having these other economic aspects to it? Yeah, um, it's, it's, yeah, you know, uh, corporations in the U.S. did walk away with an unprecedented amount of money again. Um, and yes, they were handed trillions. That money is stolen. So let, let me say that again. That money is stolen. So when we're talking about people stealing out of stores or stealing in a community or stealing from a, a business franchise, that is, it, it actually pales in comparison to the theft that has taken place by, from Wall Street. So that money stolen from workers and people who pay taxes. Um, these are corporations that are polluting, that are underpaying their employees, that are not providing health care, 
that are not doing anything for the communities that they extract from. Uh, you know, politicians working in service to these corporate elite have pushed this pandemic response deal through uncritically with little to no opposition. And people got a measly $1,200 check and some fraudulent protections like eviction bans. And I call them fraudulent because they weren't actually enforced. You know, the, the deal left a lot of vulnerable people in the dust. No changes have been made after the unresolved debt crisis that took place in 2008 that devastated vulnerable people with austerity and social cuts. You know, these cuts to social needs and important resources that are, are hurting us while wealthy people are handed trillions and allowed to hoard more and more and more. You know, the wealth, some of the wealthiest people in the world are making billions right now in, in the midst of a pandemic. And that is it's so disgusting. And so that that needs our attention and that that needs to be a, a central message here about everything that's taking place. That's, it's not a coincidence that all of this is happening right now. This is a, very much a response to that violence. So if we want to really talk about who's hurting communities by taking from them, then that's who we need to be talking about. You know, there's there there's like a monopoly on violence, right? When you talk about, hey, the protests have to be uh, they have to be peaceful, and they you know we can't we can't do anything that's you know quote unquote violent. Well, the state has a monopoly on violence. The state, the state is considered the only uh, justify to have the only justifiable use of violence in this society, and the state also, what we when we think about Wall Street, has a monopoly on theft, because the state is 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 actually saying we're the only ones who get to steal, we're the only ones who get to take. You can't take anything from us. We only get to take from you. We're going to take your tax dollars and give them to the police, who also steal. That's called civil asset forfeiture. When the police are able to go into somebody's home and take something that uh, they please, and you know, during searches and raids and keep and even sell what they take, and gives them permission to be able to, you know, claim whatever they want just and gives them an incentive to take from people. The state has a monopoly on theft there. And then the state has a monopoly on theft when we when it comes to these corporations that they enable to go throughout the world exploiting communities and exploiting people who are in need and taking from them without giving anything back. We can't we can't let we can't let the state actually think that that's okay for us to be taken from and for us to be robbed. And for some person who's reacting to that, that is, you know, unjustifiable and that's wrong. That's, that is a complete imbalance of, of the way things should be viewed. That's, that does nothing to recognize power. We absolutely have to make sure that people understand that this is not uh, two, two sides on equal footing. These are people who are vulnerable and who are exploited and who have been oppressed and who are reacting. And they're going up a, a, against a huge force. And it is, it is just, you know, it's, it's, it's really wrong to think that we should, um, we should have as much sympathy for a piece of property or for police as we should for people who fall victim to these much larger forces that I'm talking about.
Bad at Sports, Dana and Jesse chatted with Deborah Stratman about the filmmaker's now-postponed Chicago Works exhibition at the Museum of Contemporary Art. Stratman talked about working with the Contemporary Art Museum and her long association with Chicago journalist Studs Terkel. Bad at Sports airs every Wednesday at 11 a.m. And our guest today, Deborah Stratman. Hi, Deborah. Hi, Jesse. Hi, Dana. Wait, Dana or Donna or Dana? Call me whatever you want, but my parents call me Dana. Dana, all right. Sorry. I've been doing this <laughs> wrong for years with Hannah Higgins. Donna. You mean Dana Diggins. Higgins? That's Dana Diggins? You can also just call me that that girl. <laughs> um, anyway, thanks for joining us. We are eagerly anticipating your Chicago Works exhibition at the MCA. And in lieu of being able to visit it in person, we thought we would have you on the show to give us a little, uh, I guess, a little preview, a little insight to what you're planning and, yeah, talk about, well, I don't want to give everything away. Talk about Studs Terkel a little bit. Sure. Yeah. So, yeah, tell us. Do Chicago work shows have names? Do you get to give your show its own name or is it just, it's your name? Uh, I, that's an excellent question. Um, I think it's just my name. Although I've been calling, I call the studs piece feeling tone and the Illinois parables is just called the Illinois parables. So in my mind, the show is called feeling tone, but I think you're right. I think Chicago works just gets the artist's name but i could change my name to feeling tone feeling tone i think it's or donna or dana. Donna. Uh, donna well actually do you mind kind of just beginning by telling us where the feeling tone name comes from sure yeah so the feeling tone the unofficial name right not me i came from uh, i was born in washington dc in the summer of love no, so the real feeling tone um, was a phrase that Studs used a lot. And it came after, um, at least as best as I've been able to figure out, he, the first time he started using it was after one of his interviewees from, I think, Division Street, which was a book he wrote, used. And, um, oh my God, maybe I have a, um, maybe I have her actual quote and I can, and I can say it if I can find it. Let's see. She's, um, oh, her name was Nancy Dickerson. And yeah, it was from Division Street. And while he was interviewing her for that book, she said, let's face it, what counts is knowledge and feeling. You see, there's such a thing as a feeling tone. One is friendly and one is hostile. And if you don't have this baby, you've had it. You're dead. <laughs> so, so, I mean, to me, I think feeling tone is more of... I guess, intelligence beyond words. And I'm not exactly sure what it meant to studs. I think it meant a lot of things because he referred to it so much. Um, but I, yeah, I mean, I know the concept concept meant a lot to him and he organized a lot of, or he mentioned it over and over. And for me, um, yeah, it has something to do with being able to perceive beyond like what's obvious or what's stated, I guess. And um, so the show started with an interest in that, not just that phrase, but in wanting to work with um, with studs as sort of a figure with a really massive legacy in Chicago. In fact, a radio legacy. So mm-hmm. it's apropos that we're doing this talk right now, full of feeling tones. And it does seem, I mean. Sorry, Jesse, after you. Oh, just that, I mean, uh, in, in the way that you're describing that, it also makes perfect sense as to sort of like the legacy of Studs Terkel. Um, I think being one of sort of using, allowing people to express their own viewpoints by themselves and allowing sort of like histories and stories, stories more than histories from the ground be the thing that informs our kind of understanding of histories in a more general sense. Um, and so much of that has to do with tone, whether it's reading the uh, transcriptions or the sort of like the way that he... Um, not literalized, but literalized people's um, discussions or just on the the show itself, which is so much about sort of like hearing them talk and these like really kind of like long conversations as opposed to an interview in a more formal or traditional sense, um, which yeah. to me makes yeah, just I kind of like, like think perfect of sense as this idea of like the feeling in there. 
I definitely think of them more as conversations than interviews per se. Um, I mean, some function more as an interview, but I think for the most part, they feel more conversational, more of a volley or something than just, you know, somebody who has like a set level of questions to bring at. But he, um, I didn't actually know, you know, when I was a young person, I, I didn't listen to his radio shows, although he was still doing radio, you know, while I could have been listening to his interviews, but I was really familiar with his books. I first read Working and was just completely blown away by it. And then Division Street and, you know, a bunch of his others, Hope Dies Last and blah, blah, blah. He was very prolific as a, as you said, like kind of a catalog cataloger of interviews. And he would just go around with this you, her, reel-to-reel tape recorder. And he would record the interviews. And what's in the books is more or less a transcription of the interview. I'm actually not sure how much those were edited, but, um, but they're amazing in that he, for the most part, takes out his questions. He just sort of sets you up with um, a kind of mini bio about who he's talking to. Um, and then if you read the books, it's just the people he's talking to kind of giving this little mini history of their life or like an accounting of the situation they're in or, you know, any number of things. And what I love about them the most, his books in, in any case, much more so than his radio show, were just all quote unquote regular people. And, um, they just have so much authority and agency and um, like how wide he cast his net, I find super inspiring. Well, and I, you know, I think that Studs Terkel's legacy is such, it's such a kind of tome uh, in and of itself. And I'm wondering kind of where, when you were thinking about this exhibition, Sort of. I mean, he, um, for a long time, I did want to include him in the film. Um, but I didn't want to have 12, 12 parables because it's just, it's too, it's too Catholic. It's too time-based, you know, about how like the Western world, well, the whole world divides our clock vis-a-vis -vis coordinated universal time. And I didn't want something divisible so I, I had to toss him out. I mean, I could have tossed something else out, but he, he just, there kind of wasn't space for him in part because his, um, I didn't feel like the film was necessarily the right platform. And so when the opportunity for this show came up at the MCA, I'm like, oh, wow, maybe this is a chance to do, as you say, him as a sort of a 12th parable. But I really don't, I really feel like the booth stands on its own. <laughs> Hey, Kyle. Thanks for coming by. I, um, I needed to talk to you about my new job and the radio show. New job? Wait, wait a second here. New job? What you gonna be doing? What's well, pretty cool. I'm gonna be reviewing some maps and plans for some guys that I know. It's like, um, like building blueprints, mostly like banks. You gonna have those pens with got the chain on it? I sell those on the viaduct. I'll let you know, but the thing is, I'm gonna be working a lot of afternoons and nights, yeah. so I'm not gonna be able to record but, as many shows. But you're my biographer. How are we going to tell the story of my life? I'm sorry, Kyle. I, I'm just not gonna be able to hop a train with you in the middle of the night anymore. I, I have responsibilities. But what about the curse, Jess? You're too young. The what? The curse of size matters. <laughs> it's horrible. Oh, jeez. Kyle, you're making this up. Oh, no, 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 no. You see, Jess, you're not the first producer that this show has ever had. I know that. I took over from John. John wasn't my first producer either. Size Matters has had seven producers before you. Seven? Sometimes I lay awake at night and I see little Robbie's face just before... Oh, Jess, it's too painful, Dagger. Uh, the curse is real. I'm begging you, don't do this. I don't know, this sounds suspiciously like some of your old-timey oh, hokum. Oh, jeez. John seemed fine when we saw him, like, two weeks ago. Oh, poor, oh, poor sweet John. Always had my back. Always ready to shave my back. We need to check on him, Jess. Well, if it would put your mind at ease, he lives right around the corner. We can just go see him. Come on. 
Whoa, this is John's place. Yikes, it looks condemned. I thought he had one of them swanky bachelor pads at that rotating hot tub and fondue thing. He did. Are you sure this is the right address? Yeah, this is South Aberdeen. Funny, this is the only house left here now. A lot of vacant lots. Yeah, and roving packs of wild dogs. And tire fires. Johnny, it's Kyle, you pale Kyle. Johnny! Uh, I guess he's, uh... Oh, door's open. Should we just go in? Oh, what is that ah. smell? Smells like a dump took a dump on another dump. Oh. What's Johnny been eating? <laughs> Look at all this garbage. Are you sure this house isn't abandoned? Oh, Kyle, over here. I think... Oh, John, are you all right? I don't know who the flock you are, but get the flock out. I think he's drunk on giggly juice. Is that Kyle? You son of a John, come down. Give me that hand. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. John, settle down. We just came by to see you. What the hell happened here? Ouch. What happened? What happened? Calm down, I lost everything. And it's all Kyle's fault here. How? You still got that flashback noise? Oh, yeah. Ah, boy. I had just handed off size matters to Jess. For the first time in years, I felt a huge weight off of my shoulders. No more creepy requests to supervise bathing. No more late-night calls from Eddie asking me to get Kyle out of the basement. I had a new job. I had a new life. Everything was coming up Petrowski. But then, disaster struck. As I was coming home one night, a giant sewer main exploded, destroying most of the houses on my block and leveling my yard. Overnight, I went from being a friendly neighbor to being an outcast, and all because Kyle rerouted Undertown's waste pipes in a scheme to collect burp gas. Oh yeah, I, uh, I was involved in that. That stench permeated everything. That smell, it's in me. I went from being able to show my face at an office to being a rag boy at the Admiral. Are you drinking gasoline? Yeah, it messes your stomach up a bit, but it gives you a good buzz. Oh, John, this is awful. Being a rag boy is worse Mm. than leprosy. You're telling me I lost everything thanks to you. Kyle, we gotta do something. Just like that, I'm out of gas. It's the curse, I tell you, as it claims everyone. Don't even worry about me. Look at me. All we have to do is get you cleaned up and back to work. <laughs> you don't understand. That smell, man, it's everywhere. That smell's never going there. I, I, I am the smell, man. I am stink. Hold on, I got <laughs> an idea here. I'm almost certain we're not supposed to put people through a car wash. Yeah, it's a good thing Johnny's drunk, or this might probably definitely hurt him. Well, you smell better. Yeah, he does. Freshly simonized. Now, Johnny, here, I got some clothes for you. Try these on. This is a pirate flouncy shirt, and and this is a this is a bra. Did you, Kyle, did you steal this from the co-pro? Nah, it's a trek, as they moved out, but I broke into the house, and I took a bunch of stuff. And I got you an interview. It's with some old work buddies of mine. It's in radio? Well, yeah, it's in communications. You'll be using a radio. Sure. Uh, it's kind of like a like a surveillance thing. They'll they'll explain it when you get there. Gee, Jess, I can't thank you enough and and Kyle, I'm sorry I misjudged uh, you. It happens to the best of us, Johnny. You know, I, I really do feel like I can get a fresh start. Yes, I'm gonna get on yeah. this bus. Oh, oh hey, and John. I'm going uh, to bus go stops up at the corner. And Just get this. Be job. careful. <laughs> this is the Speak. first uh, time. Hey, Johnny, you gotta get out of the traffic I'm there, so buddy. Well, yeah, really. Really. You guys are the best friends a guy can Oh! Yikes! Well, on the bright side, he's moving a little. Curse, huh? Indeed, the curse. Well, I'll see you next week, Kyle. That's my girl. (laughs) This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump's polling continues to crater as the protests show no signs of abating. An increasingly isolated Trump hides in his newly fortified White House. 
Trump claims a 75-year-old man attacked by police is an Antifa plant and a setup. Trump wanted to send troops into American streets. Trump pleads with his staff for more rallies, and the GOP begins to back away. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1,233, June 5th. A surprise jobs report showed that as the lockdowns eased, employers welcomed back 2.5 million Americans to work. Trump seized on this as evidence the economy would, quote, be back like a rocket ship. He then made a stunning statement saying, quote, hopefully George Floyd is looking down right now and saying this is a great thing that's happening for our country. This is a great day for him. It's a great day for everybody. Trump later retweeted a post from conservative commentator Candace Owens saying, quote, the fact that Floyd has been held up as a martyr sickens me. Attorney General William Barr tried to back away from his actions in D.C., telling the AP he had not personally ordered Monday's Lafayette Square advance on protesters with tear gas, truncheons, and horses. This was a lie. White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McKenney had confirmed Barr's role in the gassing of peaceful protesters to allow Trump to take a picture in front of St. John's Church. Flailing in the polls and increasingly isolated, Trump sent 200 tweets and retweets on Friday, the most so far during his presidency, while protests raged outside the White House and across the world. Trump complained also about Twitter pulling a video, which he claimed showed him empathy for peaceful protesters after the police killing of Floyd. Trump then accused Twitter of, quote, fighting hard for the radical left Democrats, a one-sided battle, illegal, Section 230. Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey personally replied immediately, Not true and not illegal. Your video was pulled because we got a DCMA Act complaint from a copyright holder. A photo of a line of people waiting for a roundtable in Maine with Trump was commented on by Trump, who wrote, quote, Riot gear or military control is not necessary because Antifa and other wacko groups of anarchists aren't present to cause trouble. During that roundtable, Trump then called Maine Governor Janet Mills a dictator, saying all these states are being open and they're making a lot of money. That's why we had the good numbers today. You have a governor who doesn't know what she's doing, and she's like a dictator, you know? Cases continue to increase in Maine. In a tweet, Trump promised Roger Stone that he would not serve prison time. He can sleep well at night. That comment came in reply to a tweet sent by Charlie Kirk, the founder of conservative group Turning Point USA, who wrote that Stone, quote, will serve more time in prison than 99% of these rioters destroying America. Stone will serve at least three years for his crimes. Trump ordered the U.S. military to remove 9,500 troops from Germany. The move would reduce the U.S. contingent there to 25,000. Germany said it had not received confirmation of the move, which was met with astonishment. The move appears to be revenge by Trump. He has repeatedly pressured Germany to raise defense spending and accused Berlin of being a captive of Russia. White House staff moved press seating arrangements closer together before a news conference because it looked better. Chairs were initially positioned in a way that was consistent with social distancing, but were moved closer together. Trump remarked on that, telling reporters, even you, I notice you're starting to get much closer together. It looks much better, I must say. Not all the way there, but you'll be there soon. And Twitter users who searched for the word racist on Friday on that service were pointed toward the account of Trump. In fact, the top result for racist on Twitter is the president of the United States. Day 1,234, June 6th. Trump campaign advisor Mercedes Schlapp boosted a tweet that lauded a man in Texas as he yelled a racial slur and wielded a chainsaw, chasing away anti-racism demonstrators in a video. Schlapp, who later deleted the tweets, claimed she had not watched the full video and then said Joe Biden supported the mass incarceration of black and Hispanic communities and has failed to lift them out of poverty. In stark contrast, Trump has delivered unprecedented opportunity for black Americans. Schlapp did not explain why that explained why she tweeted a video with a racial slur. A dozen Republican county chairs in the state of Texas were under scrutiny for sharing racist social media posts commenting on the unrest. One county chair juxtaposed a Martin Luther King Jr. quote next to an image of a banana. Another commented that the pandemic isn't working, so we should start racial wars. Wichita State University Tech canceled Ivanka Trump's virtual graduation speech amid backlash over Trump's response to George Floyd's death. Ivanka responded by calling the move censorship and decrying cancel culture. In the speech, which she posted on Twitter, she called those students wartime graduates. And Twitter imposed a 12-hour lock in an account that had reposted Trump's tweets verbatim. 
The account, Suspend the Prez, was set up to determine if Twitter's algorithms would flag it as inappropriate. It did within three days after posting Trump's May 29th tweet calling protesters thugs and threatening violence in Minneapolis. Day 1235, June 7th. America's highest-ranking soldier, General Mark Milley, who also chairs the Joint Chiefs of Staff, got into a shouting match with Trump when the president demanded the regular military be deployed against protesters. Milley insisted the military could not be dispatched against American civilians. He said, I'm not doing that. That's for law enforcement. Trump actually came closer to ordering active-duty military troops to intervene against protesters in Washington than has generally been reported. One aide said Trump was ready to use the Insurrection Act and send in troops on Monday when federal police cleared the area near the White House so Trump could pose for a photo outside St. John's Church. Top Pentagon officials ordered the National Guard to use Black Hawk helicopters to disperse protesters in D.C. Army Secretary Ryan McCarthy ordered two National Guard helicopters to use the downward blast from their rotor blades to force people on the ground to take cover. Signs were ripped from the sides of buildings. The pilots from one of those helicopters has been grounded, pending the outcome of an inquiry into the incident. The technique was used in Somalia against insurgents. Trump said he would pull the Republican National Convention from Charlotte after Governor Roy Cooper said he would not agree to Trump's demand to accept his party's nomination in a packed arena. According to a recording of that call, Trump told Cooper, I don't want to be sitting in a place that's 50% empty. We can't do social distancing. Cooper pushed back and asked Trump whether he was worried that his supporters could become sick. No, I'm not, because we've learned a lot about it. Law enforcement agents seized hundreds of cloth masks that read, Stop Killing Black People and Defund Police. A Black Lives Matter-affiliated organization in Oakland sent the masks to cities around the country to protect demonstrators against the spread of COVID-19. The U.S. Postal Service, however, said they were seized by law enforcement. It is unclear why those masks were stopped. And Attorney General William Barr denied that Trump had demanded 10,000 active-duty troops be deployed against protesters. No, that's completely false, lied Barr. Barr also claimed that American law enforcement is not systematically racist. Barr's words came during an awkward appearance on Face the Nation, where it became increasingly clear he was trying to defend the indefensible. Day 1236, June 8th. Trump's aides attempted to get him to give a unity speech in an attempt to heal the country. Trump angrily rejected that out of hand. Trump wanted to immediately fire Defense Secretary Mark Esper for not supporting his idea to use active duty troops to quell protests. Panicked aides talked Trump out of it. 14 states in Puerto Rico saw their highest ever seven-day average of new coronavirus cases since the beginning of the pandemic. The hotspots that began the pandemic are showing slowdowns, but states that open early, like Georgia, Arizona, and Florida, are now heating up. The latest numbers are believed to stem from the efforts to reopen states around the country. Liberty University President Jerry Falwell Jr. sent a tweet that showed a face mask decorated with a person in Ku Klux Klan robes and another in blackface. Falwell said he was mocking the mask requirements implemented by Virginia Governor Ralph Northam. Liberty University's diversity director quit as a result, saying Falwell's open support of Trump and divisive politics made his job on the campus impossible. Trump's re-election campaign asked CNN for an apology and demanded a retraction of a poll that showed Joe Biden with a double-digit lead, claiming it was designed to, quote, manufacture an anti-Trump narrative. CNN Executive Vice President and General Counsel David Vigilante responded, saying the letter marked what he believed to be the first time in the network's history that they had been threatened over polling results. He called it factually and legally baseless. Trump apparently has become obsessed with polling and lashes out at members of his staff who say, truthfully, that he is losing to Joe Biden. Donald Trump Jr.'s hunting trip to Mongolia last year cost American taxpayers $77,000. That was mainly in Secret Service protection costs. During the trip, Trump Jr. secretly met with the Mongolian president and then killed an endangered sheep. Day 1237, June 9th. Trump falsely claimed a 75-year-old man who was hospitalized when police shoved him to the ground at a protest in Buffalo, New York, was, quote, an Antifa provocateur and that the incident could be a setup. In fact, the man who was still in hospital is a longtime peace activist and a devout Catholic. The tweet, which was sent on the same day and time as George Floyd's funeral in Houston, drew an incredulous response. 
That lie came after One American News Network, a far-right fringe conservative news network, ran a segment which claimed that man was, quote, attempting to capture the radio communications signature and interfere with police scanners when he was shoved to the ground. This is ludicrous. The reporter on the piece, Christian Ruse, is also a Russian national who works for the Russian propaganda outfit Sputnik. Reporters subsequently confronted dozens of Republican senators with a printout of Trump's tweet, as many claimed they didn't read it. All dodged questions about it, save Alaska's Lisa Murkowski, who responded, Oh, Lord. Mitch McConnell refused to say whether Trump's tweet was appropriate. Several aides said off the record that they were despondent over the tweet. One former aide remarked that it's tweets like this that make him wonder whether Trump actually wants to get re-elected. Despite Trump and Attorney General Barr's continuous attempts to blame Antifa and Black Lives Matter for violence, none of the 51 cases the Department of Justice has brought so far against people arrested during the unrest have links to either movement. In fact, the only people arrested on federal charges to have a connection to an extremist group are members of the right-wing Boogaloo movement. Three men associated with that group were trying to instigate a second civil war were charged with plotting race violence in Las Vegas. Barr also contradicted Trump's claim that he was just inspecting a security bunker beneath the White House. Barr said the Secret Service moved Trump to the bunker for his own safety after three days, quote, of extremely violent demonstrations. A Polish plan to name a military base in honor of Trump in return for the United States president placing a permanent presence there has collapsed amid disputes over how to fund the deployment and where to garrison the soldiers. The U.S. officials said the idea had been doomed from the start. There is no Fort Trump. The AP is reporting that Trump thought it would be a good idea to quarantine parts of New York, New Jersey, and Connecticut because he thought, quote, walling off a virus hot zone comprised of three Democratic states would send a signal to supporters. And Trump's re-election campaign is reportedly spending $400,000 to run pro-Trump ads on Washington, D.C. cable. The buy is odd as Trump is not competitive in either the city or the suburbs. A source said, in fact, his re-election team is hoping that the ads may put him at ease, but his, quote, formidable political machine is hard at work defending him and attacking his enemies. Trump, of course, watches Washington, D.C. television regularly. Day 1,238, June 10th. Viral cases in the United States passed 2 million. America remains one of the leading hotspots in the world. In 21 states, many of which opened swiftly, and that includes Arizona and Florida, are now seeing serious upticks in cases. Trump's coronavirus task force has not been heard from for a month. A retired federal judge urged a court to reject Trump's attempt to drop the criminal case against former advisor Michael Flynn saying the government has engaged in a highly irregular conduct to benefit a political ally of the president, John Gleason, who was asked by the sitting judge in the case to review the request, called the attempt by the Justice Department to back out a gross abuse and not credible. Gleason said the attempt furthermore undermined the public's confidence in the rule of law. George Floyd's brother Phil Anise testified before the House, making an emotional plea for change saying that a black man's life should be worth more than $20, which is the amount that his brother allegedly held in a counterfeit bill when he was killed, Philanese said, enough is enough. The people marching in the streets are telling you, enough is enough. Secretary of Defense Mark Esper and the Secretary of the Army Ryan McCarthy said they were open to a bipartisan discussion on the topic of removing Confederate names from 10 military bases. Trump, however, quickly shot that down, tweeting, my administration will not even consider the renaming of these great American military bases, these magnificent and fabled military installation. Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany read Trump's tweet at a press conference and then said, the president will not be signing legislation that renames America's forts. We've got to honor what has happened there, not rename it. A flustered McEnany then claimed that Trump does not regret a tweet he sent, falsely implying a 75-year-old man injured by police was an Antifa plant setting up cops. Quote, the president was asking questions about an interaction in a video clip he saw, and the president has the right to ask those questions. This individual had some very questionable tweets, some profanity-laden tweets. Look, we're living in a moment that seems to be reflexively anti-police officer, and it's unacceptable to the president. 
When a reporter asked if she was defending a baseless conspiracy, she replied, It's not a baseless conspiracy. No, not at all. I won't acknowledge that. It is, in fact, a baseless conspiracy. And when another reporter asked what profanity and tweets had to do with this case, McKenna gave no response at all. An aide for Mike Pompeo pressured an agency inspector general to drop an investigation into how the Secretary of State bypassed a congressional freeze on arms sales to Saudi Arabia. The aide, Merrick String, is now the top lawyer in that department. He is alleged to have helped Pompeo get around the ban and sell the weapons. He then pressured Steve Linick, who was later fired by Trump at Pompeo's request, to drop several investigations into that sale and Pompeo's use of staffers for personal errands. The news alarmed congressional investigators. An apoplectic Trump raged at AIDS over news that John Bolton's memoir has been shipped to warehouses. The White House continues to insist Bolton's memoir contains classified information and that it could present a security threat, something Bolton denies. Trump has repeatedly told advisors he wants to stop publication of Bolton's book. And Mike Pompeo brushed off questions about the tear gassing of peaceful protesters so Trump could take a photo in front of a church, explaining, quote, foreign governments do much worse when they repress their own people. Day 1239, June 11th. The Fed offered a grim outlook for the American economy, projecting prolonged unemployment, a steep recession, and a slow recovery. The forecast rattled global markets as the Fed also left interest rates unchanged, those are near zero, the Fed said unemployment remained near 10%. That report put paid to Trump's wish for a quick rebound. Treasury Secretary Steve Mnuchin also told Congress it must pass new economic stimulus legislation and it must help industries that have been hit hardest by the coronavirus pandemic, saying companies need to be incentivized to rehire idled workers. Mnuchin said there are whole American industries that need aid. Americans also are likely to need a fresh round of direct payments. In a startling interview with Trevor Noah, Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden said he expected that military officers will have to remove Trump from the White House. Biden said he expected Trump to lose the November election and refuse to leave. Biden said in the interview, this president is going to try to steal the election and went on to add his single greatest concern is possible election fraud and manipulation by Trump. Meanwhile, Trump said he would hold his first campaign rally in months next week, on June 19th in Tulsa. June 19th is Juneteenth. It is a holiday celebrating the day the Emancipation Proclamation was read to slaves in Texas. The choice of Tulsa as a locale is also strange. That is where the worst single incident of racial violence in U.S. history occurred in 1921, when mobs of whites killed dozens of African Americans, injured hundreds, and torched a black neighborhood. Trump's rally will come as thousands continue to protest racial injustice across the United States. 1,250 former Justice Department workers called on the agency's internal watchdog to investigate Barr's involvement in law enforcement's moves last week to push a crowd of largely peaceful demonstrators back from Lafayette Square using horses and tear gas. Asked on Fox News if he would do anything different in Lafayette Square, Barr responded, Based on what I now know, no. Advertisers are halting ad buys on Facebook in response to what some are calling the social network's enabling of Trump's divisive messages. Several large digital agencies have halted buys in response to several of Trump's posts calling protesters thugs and the network's decision to let them remain on the platform. It's worth noting that Trump's campaign spent more than $2.8 million in advertising on the platform last month alone. Trump threatened to take back Seattle as protesters occupied Seattle's police department's East Precinct. The demonstrators proclaimed the area the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, where police are forbidden, food is free, and documentaries are being screened at night. Tweeting, quote, Radical left Governor Jay Inslee and the mayor of Seattle are being taunted and played at a level that our great country has never seen before. Take back your city now. If you don't do it, I will. This is not a game. These ugly anarchists must be stooped that's an error on his part, immediately move fast. Trump's tweet followed an overheated segment on Fox News that claimed it was a complete takeover of a seven-block area of a Seattle neighborhood and that armed protesters were patrolling the area. Neither of those statements is remotely true. Trump then tweeted, quote, domestic terrorists have taken over Seattle run by radical left Democrats, of course. 
Fox News has taken to playing weeks-old footage of looting and rioting instead of current footage of more peaceful demonstrations when those air Trump tends to tweet. And despite Trump's tweets, the Republican-led Senate Armed Services Committee adopted an amendment behind closed doors for the Pentagon to remove the names of Confederate generals from military assets within the next three years. Americans overwhelmingly disapprove of how Trump has handled the protests. 65% say he's doing a terrible job. Americans also overwhelmingly approve of reforming American policing at 69%. Only 38% approve of the way Trump is handling the presidency. That is a net 19-point drop. That is his worst approval rating since January of 2019. It is actually roughly on par with ratings for Jimmy Carter and George H.W. Bush at the same point in their re-election years. Both of those men lost. Biden is now leading Trump by 14 points in a generic poll, and Republicans are losing by 10 points on a generic ballot to all Democrats. These are the Trump Diaries. Studio A has been closed due to the pandemic. Please enjoy the selection from On You. It was recorded by Corey Albritton.
The Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Van Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Piotrowski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. Yeah.